The following program is brought to you free of charge by the generous sponsorship of an anonymous donor in honour of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers. Radio. You just heard a bit of at least the first minute of Palestrina's Tu Es Petrus, which obviously is a appropriate track for us to begin our conversation today. Joining us, um, as always, my co-host, Nicholas Wansbutter. Today, normally we introduce him from Swords and Space, his science fiction work, but today probably more appropriate, his um, blog focused on traditional Catholicism, Durandal. Welcome, Nicholas. Thank you. And we're, of course, happy to welcome back Father Anthony Chicada. Um, from St. Gertrude the Great, but also from his own blog, uh, Queed Libet, um, which he's been talking about some of the issues this week. And just like last time, Father, um, as I said, um, as we started our show, I, I never missed the opportunity to ask a liturgical ex- expert about liturgy. <laughs> For those who don't know, uh, Father's written a book called Work of Human Hands, a theological critique of the Mass of Paul VI, which you can find at philotheopress.com. But Father, we have the rogation days coming up this week. Um, what are those? Well, these are a series of penitential days before the Feast of the Ascension. It um, has a very, very interesting history of this phenomenon of the rogation days. Uh, actually, it was a penitential procession started in uh, Vienne in France by St. Mamertus. And at that point in uh, history, the big worry was the invasion of different eastern tribes. I guess at this point it was the Goths, not the type of Goths that we know, but the other type of Goths. The original the more Goths. ancient types, yes. More, more ancient type. I don't know whether they had piercings or not. But in any event, uh, this was a great threat to uh, Christian Europe, and St. Memeritus decided that he would uh, institute a series of prayers and, and litanies uh, to have peace for the church and to protect the Christians against the Goths. It's um, very interesting, too, that these people were actually rather heroic when it came to their liturgical practices. So they would not only sing the litanies, but they would sing all sorts of psalms. We had the... Um, rogation procession today at the church and maybe it took oh maybe 30 or 35 minutes but in the time of St. Mamertus 
the processions would go on for hours and hours and hours, sometimes for as long as 12 hours. So these people were really serious about uh, asking God for his blessings uh, and for his protection. So that's a, a little bit of the history of these irrigation days. And it, just, it doesn't seem to be as popular, uh, popularly observed among trad uh, communities, I would say non-religious communities, maybe just at the parish level. Was mm-hmm. it, is it because of the, the, the length? Maybe you know the procession will be too long or it's in the middle of the week so it won't be well attended? Uh, a, a little bit. I think a little bit of, of it being during the week. But uh, it's something that we've always observed here, and we'll observe here at St. Gertrude's all three of the regation processions this week. And we have a big enough property where we can uh, uh, go around and recite the different prayers. And we also had several other processions this week, believe it or not. We did a, our, our May procession on Sunday, and since it was also May 13th, we had a, a procession in downtown Westchester for uh, the uh, Fatima procession in, in reparation. So we're having quite a few processions here this week. So you have your walking shoes on, yes, Father? Uh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, thank you for that. As, as always, uh, interesting to find out all those bits of the liturgy just surrounding us. And um, sometimes we just forget about them because they, you know, they, they're, they're out of our radar. I want to start today's show um, with something that uh, you and Nicholas and I were talking about off the air, which was how did this, how did we get from our last show where the question was, will they do a deal or not? And, and, and you did say no, and, and you had a follow-up article to that. And I, I want to I want to talk about that later. Sure. What I want to talk about now is how did we get to this exchange of letters? What does that mean? Is there a is there a real split in in the minds of the bishops? And I thought maybe you could start our listeners, at least those listeners who've been under a rock for the last two weeks, if you could give a brief primer as to what's been happening. Well, it certainly was a surprise to me because uh, at a a certain point a couple of days ago, maybe a week ago, uh, there appeared on a a site in the United States a, a letter that was from the three SSBX bishops, Bishop uh, Tissier, Bishop Williamson, and Bishop de Galaretta. This was written to the superior general, to Bishop Fouet, uh, and to his general counsel, which is the, uh, the general counsel is, I guess, the highest authority in the society of St. Pius X. And what they did was uh, basically... Um, it told him to put off the idea of arriving at any sort of practical arrangement with um, with the Vatican. And uh, it was a, um, a letter that obviously I think was written for the public record and eventually meant to be published. And they uh, made a number of, of good points in the letter, I really have to say. They talked about um, subjectivism, and the difficulty of, of um, dealing with modernists precisely because they're subjectivists. Now, this has been a uh, consistent theme uh, by uh, Bishop Williamson in his columns, and I have to say that uh, you know he's handled that very well. They also talked in their letter about how uh, if the society were to take this uh, practical deal, they would end up uh, in the post-conciliar church within 
the framework of uh, relativistic pluralism, they called it. And this is uh, very much uh, a part of the post-Vatican II ecclesiology, that you have uh, a certain amount of, of this pluralism with other ecclesiastical entities. And they really uh, nailed this. And they said that uh, it would be very difficult for the society to teach Catholic doctrine because they couldn't really condemn the modern doctrines because they would be subsumed into this this um, uh, modernist understanding of the church, uh, which uh, I refer to all the time as, as Franken-church, that it's built up of all these different elements and all these different entities. And that very much is the modernist ecclesiology. And they, they pointed out, too, that what this would mean for the society is, practically speaking, a silence that obviously if, if they got subsumed into this entity, uh, they'd have to keep silent about certain things, and that's a, a realistic expectation. Uh, so those parts of the letter were uh, really uh, quite, quite good, and they made a, a number of uh, very good points. So this letter was published in uh, the United States, and then... Uh, eventually, there appeared the response, which came from Bishop Fillet a week later on uh, April 14th. And um, he and the uh, fathers of, of the General Council signed this response. And his point was basically this, that, um, uh, well, he said he basically started by accusing them of lacking a supernatural spirit. Now that's, uh, to my way of thinking, is is uh, not hominem argument because they were trying to make theological points, and uh, he's saying that uh, you know they don't have the right kind of spirit. That's a very French and a very um, uh, the, the sort of language one hears in the society uh, quite a bit. If you've uh, nailed someone on a theological point where they really can't answer, they say, "Well, you don't have the right spirit." So that was one point he made, and then he talked about uh, his idea of the church being uh, disfigured, in effect covered with sores from head to toe. Mm. Uh, this I found rather strange. Uh, because, the book of Job explanation, I guess. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, you know, the bride of Christ really can't be disfigured. Uh, he also, in effect, accused them of, of uh, being saved of the contests, Saying that, well, Which is, you know, the worst you... thing that you can be on the planet, Father. I mean, you know that. Uh, yes, I know. Absolutely, Stephen. <laughs> so it, it doesn't get any worse than that. So, I mean, that's the, the state of a conscious boogeyman that was summoned up. Uh, he was correct, however, uh, in this point on the need for the submission to the Roman pontiff. And he tweaked them on that particular point and claims that he's doing what he's doing uh, out of, uh, you know, loyalty to the Roman pontiff and, and submission to him and uh, in recognition of this principle. And, of course, that part is uh, standard Catholic ecclesiology. So on that, I think he was right. But then he uh, condemned the idea. Uh, he accused them of making Vatican II into a super heresy, you know, which was actually worse than anything else. But this I found extremely strange because uh, everyone 
in the traditionalist uh, movement, at least from way back when, said one of the problems with Vatican II is modernism. And, of course, Pius X himself said that it, it was the uh, uh, a collection or a sewer of, of all heresies. And that is the problem with, with Vatican II. So I found that uh, extremely strange. So uh, he had uh, one or two good points in, in terms of uh, ecclesiology in his letter, but a lot of the other stuff was um, uh, sort of strange. And, and both sides, rather than making um, theological arguments, strong theological arguments, uh, both for both sides, the trump card was appealing to different quotes from Archbishop Lefebvre, mm. which... Um, you know, strikes me as, as as strange. That's even though they have very much respect for him, that's not the the greatest source. So you get the sense that they're fighting over the uh, over the body of Archbishop Lefevre, who has the right idea for well, for what he, talk, he Arch- talked about that last show. Is they know which Archbishop Lefevre are you talking about? Because you know he had different mm-hmm. quotes at different times. Yeah, you could. Um, uh, no, that's absolutely true. And someone uh, someone pointed that out. I think one of their uh, priest Father Wallier, who is, I believe, now in Belgium, said that uh, you know you could uh, get Archbishop Lefebvre to say different things at different points, and that's absolutely true because the uh, you see in this that the um, the three, as it were, the three bishops are taking the uh, stuff from Lefebvre after '88, and um, uh, Bishop Fillet is taking the stuff. Some of the stuff in the 80s and uh, 87, uh, quoting them there. And I mean, if I were in on this argument, what I could do is I could take some of the stuff uh, before the death of Paul VI and say that no, well, really he was a state of a contest, and and so I'm claiming the inheritance of Archbishop Lefebvre. So that's the difficulty with them trying to judge their, um, uh, trying to support their positions. Uh, based solely on what the Archbishop did. Although, although Father, I think uh, people uh, who are adherents of the Society of St. Pius X and the so-called hardliners would defend themselves by saying that perhaps Archbishop Lefebvre's uh, view of things um, developed over time as the situation developed and as a very uh, confusing emergency type of situation, so it took a bit of time to, for him to uh, perhaps... Uh, solidify his position and that therefore the post-1988 position is uh, kind of a more not a more authentic Archbishop Lefebvre but that's the position that he finally settled on and therefore that's the position that the society should be carrying forward with. Yeah, I could see where you could say that because uh, you know, uh, all of us who have been in the traditionalist movement for a long time have, I suppose, developed in different uh, areas in the ways that we've uh, understood things. So, uh, you know, that uh, uh, that could be a, a, a fair observation, that uh, toward the end his ideas were uh, more hardline. Right. But and just to, to take us back uh, to the letter itself, uh, we're not going to be taking questions uh, until halfway through, but there was one that was sent in early by way of Twitter that I think is uh, appropriate at this stage, so I'll just uh, give it to you, Father. Uh, the question was, uh, do you agree that Bishop Fillet's words are more consistent with a Catholic ecclesiology than those of the three? Mm-hmm. 
I see. Uh, well, the, uh, in terms of what he said about uh, submission to papal authority, uh, uh, yes, uh, the, the three really didn't uh, address that issue uh, that much, to my way of thinking. But uh, Bishop Fillet brought it up uh, explicitly. You know that, uh, and that is what he said on that point is consistent with Catholic ecclesiology that you have to be you have to submit to the Roman Pontiff. That's necessary for salvation. Right, but on the other hand, it sounds like uh, you agree with the points of uh, the other points. Perhaps aside from that, that, on the issue of submission to the Pope, you agree with the. Errors or the issues that the uh, the three are pointing out. Mm-hmm. Yes, so it's 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 um, uh, quite unusual, and I suppose not really surprising, because um, uh, you know one of the things that uh, I maintain all along is that the ecclesiology, the understanding of the church, the theology of the church, that the society has has uh, put into practice uh, is something that you can't justify in terms of standard ecclesiology. So you have the, this, this idea that, as we always say, recognize and resist. And so what you see in the two letters is you see two sides of that. You know, you see uh, Bishop Fillet going to the recognized side and saying that, well, I'm just carrying this out and this is consistent. And the three going to the resist side saying that uh, we're going to resist this because this is evil and, and wicked and against the Catholic faith. It's just the two things. And uh, that question was left by um, someone named, or at least the Twitter name was uh, Stop Anti-Catholicism, which I suppose is a good sentiment to have. Um, for those of you who want to submit questions... On Twitter, we are at True Restoration, and um, we'll be taking questions there. We'll also be taking um, questions via telephone. Uh, we're going to wait a little while to start taking those calls, but uh, we'll give that number out, and you'll be able to call in by telephone. Um, Father, we have a question from Novus Ordo Watch, mm-hmm. uh, a well-known site. The question is, the X has always divided Rome into eternal and modernist, which Rome would they be joining? And uh, what are your comments on that? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think that it was a very German well, question. Talk about a loaded question. Who, uh, who would have come up with that? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it's it's one entity. And the, um, the people who are, are running things now are modernists. And it is the, it is the conciliar church, as it were. And that is the... the uh, institution. Those are the officials, and uh, uh, those are the people that the society would be joining up with. So, uh, the um, distinction between uh, the eternal Rome and the modernist Rome, or the um, uh, Rome of all times and the Rome of the tendency neo-Protestant uh, and modernist tendency, or the distinction between the official church and the real church, etc. These were uh, concepts that were developed in the uh, 1970s in the society to go along with the uh, this, this bifurcated ecclesiology of recognize and resist. And uh, I know because I was there when these 
ideas were bandied about and uh, uh, in effect invented. So, but to my way of thinking, uh, the uh, whole shooting match down in in Rome now is is a, a modernist uh, modernist operation. Even though there are are, are in fact uh, people who are starting to question the um, ideas behind Vatican II and what Vatican II did, uh, the operation uh, is in fact a modernist operation. That's what it's it's based on. Um, so I guess we have to kind of parse that a bit. Um, which, when you say they, will it be the neo-SSPX, those who go along versus, let's say, a breakaway group? Um, you're saying that they would join modernist Rome because that's all that's currently available. There isn't an eternal Rome to join except in your heart, I suppose. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, Stephen. Okay. Uh, that's a good way to put it. And uh, they become part of a modernist institution, uh, a, 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 a fully integrated subsidiary of the modernist institution. Um, I think Nicholas has been dealing with uh, at least a few people who've managed to call a little early. I think what we'll do is we'll give the number out and we'll just let people know you can have the number and we'll start taking calls in probably the next five or ten minutes. We know there's a lot of interest and we've gotten a lot of uh, feedback about the last show we did on this topic. The telephone number you can use is 949-272-9417. Again, that's 949-272-9417. That's simply a domestic call if you're in the United States. Um, again, obviously, the easier, faster way is to put a question on Twitter um, at True Restoration. However, if you want to interact with Father and, um, and chat with him a bit, telephone calls can be the best way to do that. And I think, Nicholas, you were, you were talking with a gentleman um, while Father and I were, were speaking. I came our first one when we get to uh, taking questions. But... Uh, Father, there's there's a one thing I wanted to uh, bring up and perhaps uh, give uh, you a bit of a opportunity to defend yourself and uh, also to I, I'm a bit interested in uh, how heaven knows there's a lot to defend, <laughs> right? But um, uh, the uh, the three letters that we've been talking about they uh, they were leaked to the media and uh, uh, well first uh, Menzingen. Uh, issued a very angry uh, response and um I know the uh, district superior of Canada father Jurgen Wegner gave a fiery sermon in Toronto uh, this past Sunday condemning the priest that uh, or he believes it's a priest that uh, leaked this and saying it's a mortal sin to mm-hmm. share other people's uh, correspondence um and then uh, uh Rorate Chaley kind of piled on as well, saying how this is uh, a horrible thing. So, um, I guess my first question is in that: like, is that the normal way for the church that things are done in a complete utter secrecy without anyone knowing what's going on? Um, and uh, is it in fact a, a mortal sin to, in a, a matter of this import, to to uh, leak uh, something? Well, I mean. The the um, Vatican itself, uh, the way that the Vatican always operated, is that um, all correspondence with them was was confidential and under what canon law I think called the pontifical secret. So you could not 
um, uh, release any uh, any Vatican correspondence. This case is obviously uh, you know a little bit different. When I look at the test, the the um, uh, well the, the the two letters. The f- first thing is that um, normally you would not. Uh, a person has the right to privacy in his correspondence, and uh, that in, in a, a grave matter, it would be something that would be uh, sinful to get into someone's correspondence and to release it. But uh, I'm not entirely uh, against the person's will. I'm not entirely sure that was the case here, because both uh, letters, the nature of both letters, is that they were uh, intended to be published at some point. Uh, the uh, the whole tone of them the the elevated tone the uh, different appeals to rhetoric etc and this was meant, they were meant for a public audience um, the uh, letter from the three um, could very well have been um, released with some sort of implicit consent from one of the bishops um, the uh, what Menzigan did is is the, they. I assume they released their letter as as kind of a response, but uh, I don't think it's it's necessarily that grave a matter in uh, this particular case because those letters were uh, really meant to be published, and everyone knows how easy it is to publish uh, a letter or anything on the internet these days. If they had wanted absolute, if everyone had wanted absolute confidence. Uh, and nothing to be said, and then um, they could have had a, a private meeting with Bishop Fillet, and he could have responded to the concerns in private. That would have been the way to do it. They wanted to go on the record. Uh, yes, that, that was the idea, you, because having been in this sort of position vis-a-vis the Society of St. Pius X myself, we wrote a, a private letter to Archbishop Fever. At the beginning, but eventually it was going to go on the record, and we knew that when we wrote it. So, and and his his responses, he knew that his responses were uh, going to go on the public record eventually as well. So, so then, to my second question, and recognizing that this is an unprecedented uh, situation that we're in to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, it, some people, some of the responses you get from those who support Bishop Fillet is, uh, it's none of your business. It's just Americans thinking that they should know everything, and this, is, you know, the proper church way is that everything is dealt with in complete secrecy, and then the faithful just get presented with the end result, or even the priests of the society. Um, is that the norm, or is this? Uh, if, if an order of priests were to be making some monumental shift in the direction they've been going, would that normally be something that in the past would have involved a, a, a general chapter of the of the uh, priestly order? Mm-hmm. Um, I understand. Uh, first of all, don't blame the Americans because I think it was a Brit who, who released it. <laughs> okay, so we're not guilty. But uh, apart from that, it's a... Um, as I say, it's a question whether there was some some sort of uh, consent initially in doing it. And the other uh, question is, it's a fairly important issue, and there uh, one could make a justification that there's a proportionate uh, proportionate cause for releasing it. Uh, it doesn't harm anyone's reputation, uh, and these are matters of 
concern, really, to many Catholics who are involved, to, to priests who are in the society, to members of the laity, uh, and to those outside the society, uh, because it's... My apologies, we had some technical dif- difficulties there. I just managed to pop off the, the line. Um, so when uh, when Father joins us, um, we'll, uh, we'll try Here to... Here I am. Father, I'm sorry. For some reason, my... Uh, my line cut off, um, and I'm sure I... Well, sort of it wasn't Bishop stranded. Williamson this time. Uh, <laughs> I, I, well, I, 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 I think I saw a Swiss area code. But... <laughs> All right, can you hear me now? I can. And, and but back, to, back to this point that we're talking about, um, I think ultimately the question now is for a lot of society faithful... Is sedevacantism an option for the first time? Mm-hmm. Because if they don't go to Rome, they realize they're sort of stranded. And uh, mm-hmm. I got a question on Facebook, which I, I hadn't realized was also another way we could ask questions. But a gentleman um, asked, can you ask Father Chicada where the church is right now? It seems to have disappeared according to his position. And without well, getting into a long, long defense of sedevacantism, perhaps you might be able to encounter that point. It's in those who... Um uh, profess and, and practice the one true Catholic faith, and who have not accepted the modernist uh, the modernist errors of the era, and that's where it is. Uh, it it, um, uh, it cannot be somewhere where there. I think, Father, sometimes we get spoiled by the fact that, you know, we see a, a quote-unquote visible church means it's available on the Internet. You, there's news stories published about it. But, you know, one could ask, um, what, uh, uh, where was the visible church when the church was in the catacombs? Where was the visible church when popes were getting murdered, you know, every other day? Um, I, I, I think sometimes we get the idea of visible church a little bit confused with the luxury we've had of a non-persecuted church for centuries, an essentially non-persecuted church. And th- those who write on ecclesiology also say that the visibility of the church is not affected by um, in situations where uh, it is reduced to a small number of people, that it continues to be, uh, it continues to be visible then but in the small number of people who possess the Catholic faith. So it's not an impossible uh, uh, situation. It's something that theologians have, theologians have talked about. Well, not only that, we had the Aryan crisis as well. It had to be also quite small at that time. Sure, sure. And, uh, but the, the, the fact that there um, are, uh, that the number of faithful Catholics is very small uh, does not take away the visibility of the church, uh, nor uh, it's, it's, this is a, a separate issue. N- nor does the fact that the number of Catholics is uh, uh, very small uh, automatically, by default, say that well, the people who teach uh, and profess modernist heresies must therefore be the um, uh, real hierarchy of the church. That doesn't solve that particular problem. It's two different issues. It's uh, visibility. Uh, is a separate uh, question from uh, uh, the question of the modernist hierarchy. And Father, for those who actually believe in looking it up, 
and uh, finding out more about these issues. Where is something you could, where where would you start to read a little bit more about the church's visibility and, and what that actually means? Well, I've um, uh, I uh, wrote an article, "Traditionalist Infallibility in the Pope," and that addresses some of these issues. And you can find that on traditionalmass.org. Um, uh, I believe I've I've uh, written about it elsewhere, but that's a that's a good starting point for questions. And that's got some footnotes in there um, regarding some of those talks, that, uh, some of those points you were talking about regarding visibility. Yeah, it's it's uh, got a lot of stuff. Well, um, Father, again, sorry for that technical difficulty. It, it seems that when you're on, you know, we we uh, we're, we're going to get sabotaged. We haven't had that, that sort of uh, difficulty with our other two shows, so I blame you. Um, um, why not? Let's. Um, uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, let Nicholas, um, who's, who's also been dealing with our callers, kind of uh, pick up because I know he had he had a couple of points that he wanted to make. Yes, Nicholas. Oh, let me turn his. Start getting the questions. I, I think it would be worthwhile if we discuss on air something that we were just talking a little bit about before we started the show about uh, the various, uh, I guess, the positions of the hosts here and uh, our beliefs of what's going to happen. It seems that a deal is almost unavoidable at this point. Um, and by me saying almost, I guess I'm uh, telegraphing my position is I'm not entirely convinced that there's going to be a deal and that everyone's going to go along with it. But before we, I get into that, maybe you and Stephen, uh, you just indicate what your thinking is on that. Okay. Well, uh, I mean, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about this, um, uh, my position was that uh, it would seem to be unlikely if you try to balance two things. Um, the uh, their, uh, How they've gone back and forth on this issue, how Pius X has gone back and forth. And uh, I came out on the side where, uh, well, I thought that uh, Bishop Valet would not uh, buy the cow, that he would not do the deal. But uh, as uh, this other correspondence came out, it seems very, very uh, clear from his letter to the three that he, in fact, is determined to do a deal no matter what. Also, his his various comments to the press, he seems uh, very, very strong that he is going to do uh, a deal. He is going to arrive in accord with them. And they put out this... um, the fact that he had uh, all of these different uh, district superiors uh, and older figures in the Society of St. Pius X line up uh, behind the deal after he got uh, heat from the three, uh, that's a sign, I think, of his seriousness, and he wanted to show the Vatican that he can deliver what he's, he promised. And that's, that's another um, way of expressing his a determination that this this thing is going to go through. So I, at right. this point, I, I would be extremely surprised if it did not. Well, and I, I know I referenced that the sermon in Canada, certainly District Superior here um, has done that, but uh, Stephen, you had your uh, uh, piece that you posted uh, today or yesterday as kind of a lead-up to today's show, and you had some rather strong opinions about how the faithful would take to this inevitable deal. Yes, um, and, you know, I'm not known for my strong opinions ever. but um, Certainly not. One of, one, one of the things um, I think that is clear to me um, 
at least here in the United States, is is two things. One, that there is an absolute unbending trust of what Bishop Fillet has to say or do. And that's been built up because he's been practicing doing that. The other bishops haven't had a chance to, you could say, win that trust because they haven't been in, de- in a decision-making capability. It's not to say they're not worthy of trust, but the faithful are used to, quote-unquote, trusting Bishop Fillet because he always brings back good news and he gives these conferences and he says we will not compromise, etc. So I think the faithful have been lured into a personality cult, Bishop Fillet. It was evidenced by a couple responses to my, my post in which not any of the facts were questioned. But just how dare I say these things about Bishop Fillet? So it sort of brought home the point that I, I made a I made a comment in the article that people worship Bishop Fillet, and I listed all these other facts. And then the comment was, "How dare you attack Bishop Fillet?" <laughs> so um, I think one is a personality cult revolving around Bishop Fillet, and I think people maybe are starting to recognize that about themselves. But Which secondly, is sort of surprising because. My uh, impression from dealing with him is that he is not a, uh, a dynamic personality, you know, someone like Bishop uh, D- uh, Bishop Williamson. But I mean, you know the situation far better than I. So. Yeah, he's got a great smile, and uh, you know, people people really like him. He's very friendly, uh, sort of a Johnny mm-hmm. Carson, you know. Yeah. Um, so you don't really know the guy, but you know, he makes you smile. And I think that's that's Bishop Fillet. Um, and if you look, I mean, he's not known for his theological thinking. He's not known for his, his reasoning in canon law or ecclesiology. He outsources all of this to other people. And one of the things you know about the archbishop is he was known as a good theologian. Uh, and he had studied in the right seminaries. But Bishop Fillet is not uh, known for that. So he's he's never been a resource that the society has leaned on to investigate these matters. And that's why... Whenever he gives conferences, he's not really talking about theological principles, but he's talking about politics. So, anyway, sorry, Nicholas, that's a long answer to your short question, but my, my position right. is that the faithful will stay. They're not going to leave their chapels. They have mass. They, they have two, two, three masses on Sunday. They get to go to confession every week. They have, they have schools for their children. They have spaghetti dinners. They have jogathons. They're not going to leave all of that to go to your house in a garage and go to mass. Now, that's my feeling. You shared with me that after you went to, and you go, you attend Society of St. Pius X Masses, you shared with me that after you went to Mass on Sunday that you heard quite the opposite, and maybe the Canadians are a little bit uh, more, um, well, more bit more resistors than the Americans, but... Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it may just be the circles that I, I travel in, um, and as I was mentioning, the chapel that I attend is, maybe has a tendency to be a bit more hardline just because... I uh, attend um, Our Lady of Mount Carmel in uh, New Hamburg, Ontario, which was really created out of nothing. Uh, Father Rassand, months before he was transferred to the United States, bought a school and then invited, went across the country um, encouraging people to come. So I guess it's like maybe it's the really serious people are all the ones that, like me, quit their jobs, sold their houses, and, and moved down here. Um, mm-hmm. Although on the other hand, you think those would be the people with the most to lose by uh, by going back to the garage mass because we did all you know quit our jobs and sell our homes and come here for the school. Um, but um, I was uh, the, talking to them, and then uh, I had over for dinner another family, and the, the gentleman I was speaking to, he has a whole other set of contacts that I don't, and his feel is that there's starting a, a real backlash against. Uh, the uh, against the deal is starting to build, at least among the laity, on the strength of knowing the position of the three bishops. So, mm-hmm. 
that that's why I'm. I mean, I think it's clear that Bishop Fillet, through his what he said, is giving every indication that there's going to be a deal, uh, no matter what. Mm-hmm. But I, I I don't know if everyone's going to go along with it. I you know I I I may I may be wrong. I mean, people may may talk tough and. I mean, even myself, you know, it'll be pretty difficult to uh, give up a, a school, and I don't know that, I, I'm not even sure what, I, if I have a concrete plan of what I'll do if there is is a deal, but... Um. One of the, the underlying things, Nicholas, is, is that um, I suppose it does depend from area to area, um, but uh, in some of the areas that I'm familiar with, uh, especially down here, uh, in uh, southwest Ohio, northern Kentucky, there's very much the mentality of what we call Latin massism. In other words, that people, uh, many of the people who end up at a Pius X uh, center, and I know many of the people uh, in the area, have the mentality that as long as it's a Latin mass and, and uh, you know, they, they have a school, the Greater theological issues really are not going to interest them as long as they get just that basic minimum and sort of no controversy along with it. So those people, I think, who have bought into the mentality of Latin massism, that it's basically just the mass that I'm interested in, uh, in on a parish level, uh, I think it'll be relatively easy for them to get along with the deal. Uh, all the priests would have to do is assure them that, well, you know, that, that uh, we're just going to keep the same old Latin mass here, and uh, that's going to be that. It's not really going to affect us. And uh, I think simpler people will go along with it. Well, that's, and I think, uh, Father, you, you said earlier reason. that the specter of set of econtism was brought up in Bishop Valet's letter, and I think people are confronting that if they don't go along with the deal, they're not going to go to the Fraternity of St. Peter. They're unlikely mm-hmm. to go into a splinter of a splinter of the society. So the other question is set of econtism, and I think a lot of people are confronting what you said before. Are they actually latently set of econtists, and they just maybe are going to admit it to themselves for the first time. And I think, Nicholas, you were dealing with a gentleman who would called in, not entirely on that point, but asking about, you know, what does it mean to be set of a contest, why, and what what has that meant for the society, and maybe you could introduce that caller. Yes, so we'll sure. bring on, we waited very patiently. Uh, uh, John, I think he's calling from the United States. Uh, okay. So it, and as Stephen uh, led up to, he's got a question uh, regarding... Why the Society of St. Pius X? Maybe a comment and a question about why the Society of St. Pius X may not be set of a contest. So, uh, John, uh, go ahead with your question, please. Hi, John. Hello. John, are you there? Okay, we uh, unfortunately. Well, it's too bad he was he was patiently on hold since almost the beginning. Um, the right. mysteries of the switchboard. <laughs> okay, well, perhaps well, we can. Uh, Nicholas, if you like, we I think we also had another caller who was patiently waiting. Maybe we could connect yeah. the dot a little bit with where we are in Pivot. Yes, uh, we we have a call from uh, Joseph, also from the United States, uh, uh, expressing that perhaps the society already is uh, really uh, in with Rome and doesn't even need to uh, confirm that with the deal. So, uh, Joseph, uh, if you're there, if you could go, you can go ahead, please. Oh, hi there. Uh, Stephen, this is wonderful. And um, 
by the way, I, I've got to confirm the notion of the cult of personality against one of your blog responders. Boy, is it a cult of personality on every single level. And if it's not your rector, then it's your superior general or it's your favorite priest. And that's how my life was in the seminary. My, I was not a Christian. I was a worshiper of creatures. <laughs> Those creatures were my superiors. Um, so I, I was in, in the SSPX seminary. And, and so my notion, my question for Father is kind of simple uh, because, you know, and I know Stephen and Nicholas, I know you both read um, you know, the great groundbreaker for all of us, the great deal breaker, and that was uh, Father Chicago's Grain of Incense, as you may recall. Mm-hmm. And that was the that that was the big thing that that really just um, you know we could all stand on. And um, but my my question is: Is there really a necessity uh, to sign an agreement with Rome? Because after all, um, the seminary when I knew it uh, in you know in the you know from 1999 to 2000 end of 2004, I was seeing modernism taking place right before my eyes. When uh, you know I asked if. I, I asked the, the rector, the, the French rector come in, I asked him, well, um, didn't, didn't our Lord create the church um, as Catholic in actu, and not just in potentia? Mm-hmm. So if he created it in actu, then why are we praying for the conversion of the church to Catholicism? If it was already created Catholic, in act. And this is a question mm-hmm. of acting potency, which because I was studying metaphysics. Well, the, the solution was the next semester, let's just get rid of metaphysics, they will have the French rector, you know, do little seminars on Socrates and Aristotle instead. Okay. So isn't it already, aren't we already modernists? And then the communicate in Socrates. We're already saying, you know, with them, right? Now, I, I hear uh, Potentia for a question. Are you going to put it in Octu? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will. Um, so what's your question? If, if, if the SSPX is already... Uh, doing communicatio in sacris with through the inacumasis, aren't they in a sense already incorporated with modernist Rome? Well, uh, and Joseph, thank you. Uh, on, uh, on the level of, uh, you could certainly say on the level of uh, desire and on the level of, of uh, what they would like to see, and that's their their uh, liturgically, that is their expression of it, because they they profess uh, union already with. Um, Benedict XVI and with the new church in the canon of the Mass, whenever they recite that. So, uh, you know, they are, uh, that's something that prof- uh, that's professing, but uh, now uh, the rest of the, the drama that's going along with that is the, uh, starting to unfold. And that's obtaining some sort of a legal recognition for themselves from these people that hitherto they've professed to be in communion with. So that's essentially, I think, the answer to it, that it is um, uh, uh, from a point of view of desire and from the point of view of theological uh, point of view, they're saying that they are part of it, and now they're getting the approval for it from a legal point of view. Good. Does that, Joseph, does that answer your question? It, it answers it perfectly because it, it seems like um, the, the formal uh, practical agreement then is the kind of the logical conclusion of the communicatio in sacris then and the unicum. So it right, in, in potentia and now in octu. Yeah, correct. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, thank, thank you very thank, much thank you for your call. Um, well, Father, and I think, too, obviously we... We don't, 
I've tried to, and I tried to do this on the last call too, we can get sidelined into questions about, you know, apologetics for sedificantism, and that's not really the issue here. I mean, obviously, I think Society Faithful and Bishop Filet even said it, you know, if, if you're not going to do a deal, well, then you must be going down that other path. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Some people have accused uh, you and others of being very excited about this because, you know, you're going to get more money and you'll be able to get more people in. Um, because I'm sure that's what you're looking hey, for. Do I give them the address for money now to send it to? Or, or <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure we cover that at the end of the show, Father. Uh, the idea is, how do, you, how do you respond to that accusation? That, and I think Nicholas brought this up. You know, are are you are you happy to see the society in division because you know you left them and, and you know like a spurned lover, you're happy to see them <laughs> in in trouble now? Well, I wouldn't exactly say that. Um, the uh, the way I look at it is is uh, this that, that first of all it's a historic thing. Uh, there's a um, uh, this this big shift is going to take place, and so naturally this is quite quite interesting uh, to those of us who are involved with the society, and uh, it's a big outfit. It's a big operation. They have all these priests. And so it's a historical moment, and naturally it, uh, naturally it, it interests us. Um, so there's that point. The second point is that from the point of view of um, theology and theology of the church, uh, it would be a lot easier uh, to, uh, if the society were to make an agreement, because then you would get a clear line between those who are part of the new church and who actually reject Vatican II, um, and uh, those, uh, rather those who are part of the new church and uh, sort of have to take Vatican II at least implicitly, and the rest of us who reject it. So from that point of view, uh, it would draw a bright line, and that's something really that I would welcome. On the other hand, it's um, uh, you know very sad from the point of view of, of, of priests to see the distress of the faithful over something like this, uh, the the upheaval and, and the upset. So that's what I would say. I would kind of split my answer to the question. When I think Nicholas brought it up before the show that you know here essentially we are losing people who are who are in some ways, I don't want to say mostly traditional Catholic, but traditional Catholic in lots of ways, now being, you could say, lost to the Novus Ordo Church, and does it sadden you to see souls you know, put into that position where now they're going to be subjected to sort of Novus Ordo irregularities? Uh, sure, and, and, and that's what the three pointed out. Uh, that's what's going to happen. It's interesting, the thing that I thought was interesting is that they said already there's a diminution there's been uh, since um, uh, there's been all this talk of some sort of an accord there's been a diminution of um, uh, zeal and enthusiasm in the organization for uh, attacking different errors and I think that that's for, that's a significant uh, observation uh, what what happens is once you get actually into the um, New church, you actually get into that uh, situation. Uh, there'll be a lot more of, uh, in the way of self censorship, and people will know that there's certain things they're simply not supposed to say, mm. and uh, uh, certain things about the new church they're simply not supposed to challenge. And the uh, bishop fillet and and the officials of the society will sort of end up being um, 
uh, in the position, I guess, of, of the Capos in the Warsaw Ghetto, you know, the the, the uh, uh, Jews who took care of the other Jews and who kept order, in effect. So uh, the situation that uh, the three uh, bishops uh, perceived as already happening once uh, Bishop Fillet leads uh, everyone or as many people as he can into this arrangement of the new church that uh, that will become more so there will be more of the self-censorship and I, I would certainly agree with that I mean, it seems uh, rather illogical for some to try and say that now that there isn't even an agreement, that there's a level of censorship, and that's going to become less once they've uh, signed on. And, and we've noted, too, that, again, never before last year did we see anything in society communicates about what was happening in the diocese. It was as if that was on Mars. Um, you'd sooner see news on Mars than you would on what was happening in the local diocese. And we started to see stuff like that creeping up. And now it's a pretty regular thing. You'll see it on Dietschy and on sspx.org. You're going to see regular updates about what uh, National Catholic Reporter-esque commentary on what's going on um, in the Novus Ordo Church. And I think I think it might be a good time. Uh, I know I've been delaying calls, but we've been taking calls. Um, our telephone number, you're listening to Restoration Radio's discussion of the dispute among the bishops regarding the SSPX upcoming deal. My co-host is Nicholas Wansbutter, and we're joined with Father Anthony, we're joined by Father Anthony Chicada. The telephone number you can use to call in is 949-272-9417. And I would invite Society Faithful, those who attend Society Chapels, um, do you think that most faithful would go along? Are you personally going to go along? Why or why not? please call in or uh, submit those questions on Twitter um, or comments on Twitter, and uh, we'd love to discuss that more with you. Um, Father, and, and, I'm sorry, uh, Just to add to that, for uh, if we're soliciting calls, especially from Society Faithful, to add, I guess, to your question, I'd also be interested in hearing the next step of what are people going to do if if, there is, if they don't want to go along with the sellout and the sellout happens, what are they planning on doing? Are, or uh, are we going to vote with our feet? Are we going to vote with our wallets? Are we going to... Uh, I think that would be an interesting discussion to have, and it's, it's what part of why it would be, nice, be nice to have a society priest. <laughs> Obviously, he wouldn't be allowed to discuss this, which is why we don't have a society priest on the show, but it would be nice, interesting to have a, a hardliner priest to give us some of that insight. Yeah, if there is a priest out there, feel free to come call in with your, your voice disguised. We'll pretend it's confession, and, and we won't say who you are. And come in and share your thoughts on what's going on in the society. Father, I have, I have sort of... Yeah, see, if you, see if you can imitate a Swiss accent. <laughs> you know? um, we have sort of a tautological question I got here from Twitter, um, you know, while people might be calling. If it is necessary for salvation, to, and this is from Christopher Borman, if it is mm-hmm. necessary for salvation to submit to the Roman pontiff, if the said aid position is true, must one accept it for salvation? Not quite sure I understand that, but I'll, I'll try to kind of refilter it the way I understand it. The, um, the the difficulty that he seems to be raising is that the Holy... Uh, well, we're off into the state of Aconte thing again, but might as well. Okay. Just for a moment, Father, just for a moment. Uh, yeah, just for a moment. Um, he seems to be saying, well, you know, if you have to be submitted to the Roman pontiff, what if there's no Roman pontiff? I think that's basically, I think that's the the underlying question. And the answer to that is that 
the uh, Holy See and the rights of the Holy See um, continue to exist even when it's uh, vacant. I talk about this in Traditionalist Infallibility of the Pope, and some theologians, Dorsch was one of them, wrote about it at, at great length. And the idea is that the Catholic, a Catholic is uh, uh, submitted to the Holy See even though it happens to be empty, because there's a distinction between the institution itself that uh, our Blessed Lord established and uh, the rights of that institution, and whether or not there's actually a person filling that. So the church can can go on, and uh, other theologians, I think like Suarez, uh, have said that when the uh, there's no longer a uh, someone who is is uh, actually uh, is the pope sitting in the sea, that the life of the church is slowed down. It's like a headless body, headless at least as as regards uh, what's going on on earth. And its its life is is slowed down. There are no new in initiatives, et cetera. Certain things can't be done, but nevertheless, it continues because Christ maintains it from heaven. Mm. And that's the general idea. When I general think the follow up to that is, he's asking, do we? Does someone have to believe? Does someone have to believe that there's no pope? I guess that's the question he's asking. Does someone have to believe that there's no... Po if you have to submit to the Roman pontiff, and there is no Roman pontiff, do you have to believe that there is no Roman pontiff in order to be saved? Is that your position? Well, no, but... Uh, what? In, uh, because people understand this in all sorts of different ways. and But I'm saying that it's, it's in terms of Catholic theology, it's the only logical explanation for the situation that we're in. Otherwise, you end up with an erring church and a church that gives you evil. But it's not necessary to uh, come to that conclusion uh, for salvation because people are at different levels and, and in terms of their understanding of so many things. And, uh, you know, uh, God has uh, mercy, surely, on, on uh, the simple souls who... Uh, don't understand all these things, and one hopes he also has mercy on those who know theology as well. Mm. Right. Well, and I think thinking of simple souls—that's uh, one thing that I was thinking of asking because Stephen and I had a little bit of a disagreement. Uh, I think he, he not so much a disagreement, but Stephen was saying that he thinks that this is actually for the good if uh, the society makes an agreement with Rome because then they'll be more theologically consistent. But for the simple folk, if you're assuming a, even a set of a contest uh, perspective, it, wouldn't it be better for the society not find a deal for for the, the faithful that they would uh, still be in a traditional setting rather than what I think will happen is they'll become another Campos, Fraternity of St. Peter, Labaru, etc., and, you know, not be teaching the fullness of the Catholic faith because they're underneath the authority of uh, Benedict XVI et al. Yeah, well, but there are problems with that, too, because the idea that you... Um, you can recognize someone as the Roman pontiff but resist them uh, undercuts all of the traditional Catholic theology the traditional Catholic understanding of the part of the papacy 
And uh, so you have problems either way. Uh, what over 40 years uh, the society has done, unfortunately, is to um, undermine and, and to, to uh, gut the traditional understanding of, of how a Catholic ought to submit to the Roman pontiff. And that uh, there are generations of priests and lay people who have been raised with that false idea. And uh, the fact that this is shaken up now, will be shaken up now, is, uh, you know, an opportunity in, a good, uh, uh, in the sense that people can more easily be brought to a correct understanding of the papacy and what one is supposed to do. Well, it's a huge paradigm shift, Father. I mean, you're talking about the dominant thinking in traditional Catholicism by sheer numbers. These sure. societies popular recognize and resist concept, which is you recognize a man as Pope, but you get to pick and choose what it is that you want to obey. Well, with them joining the Fraternity of St. Peter and all the other groups, that position essentially disappears a la 1984. We've always been at war with East Asia. Well, you know, we've, we've always believed in the authority of the Pope, and now we're just, you know, formally part of the Church again. So when you have that huge sea change of people who are essentially, whether they articulated it as such, recognized and resistors, then switching over, I'm thinking, how does the fraternity of St. Peter feel? <laughs> you know, and all these other people who, you know, had cut their own deals, now, now the, the organization that they all left is going to get the biggest sweetheart deal of them all. Of you know, course. They just waited, if they just waited around. <laughs> so I, I guess what, what you're saying, Stephen, and something for listeners to think about, well, the, the ramifications of this is really the, the whole thing is you used to have Sedevacontus, Society of St. Pius X, um, and Indult as the spectrum of traditionalists. <laughs> if this deal goes through and everyone goes along with it, the spectrum is going to be Indult and Sedevacontus, and the Sedevacontus will become almost the sole opposition to uh, to the modernism that's coming from Rome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll, uh, there will be some, though, uh, Nicholas, that will uh, retain the old Pius X line, I'm pretty sure. Oh, it's too attractive. There will, yeah, someone, I, I agree with you, Father, someone is going to carry the torch for recognize and resist. Um, yeah, and it might yeah. even be carried by clerics. Um, yeah. I mentioned in my article that I think of all the... Uh, the clergy that are likely to go, it might be Bishop Williamson, and I'm not saying that from personal knowledge. I have not had a discussion with Bishop Williamson about this issue in the last few weeks. And in fact, I've sort of studiously avoided having a discussion with him about it. But um, I think for the sole reason that he really does carry the line of the Archbishop, as you alluded to earlier, mm-hmm. Father, oh, yeah, is sure. whatever is whatever it is at that, at that time, is is the position, and, and I think currently it's crystallized in amber in recognize and resist. That is how uh, Archbishop Lefebvre left it, and that's how it must be preserved. That there is no room for an agreement. And also, to Bishop Williamson's credit, he's never seen the society as the church or the salvation of the church. He's always said, "Well, the society may do good now, but it may not be. It may not do good in the future." And mm. it's important to uh, to kind of have that distinction. Uh, Yes, and, and uh, you know, he uh, is certainly one, I think, who would, uh, uh, who would try to c- uh, carry the flag. Um, if, uh, you know, we never, uh, my personal uh, opinion was that I doubted he would ever 
especially after his dust up in Germany and how he was more or less uh, hung out to dry that he would really ever want to go along with any sort of deal with the Vatican. But uh, the surprising development, uh, I must say, is the, the letter again of these three bishops, three of them. It's astounding. Well, and keeping up on this theme, Father, of, of what will change, um, I think Nicholas had a chance to speak with a caller on on what you know what will happen, what will be different for trads, what we've just been talking about for the last few minutes. I'll allow Nicholas to introduce this caller. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, we have a caller, uh, uh, Henry, has uh, the question along the lines that Stephen just indicated. So, uh, Henry, uh, you're on if uh, you can go ahead with your question, please. Okay. Hello, Henry. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Father. Um, if there is an agreement, will it change anything as far as our present situation with us uh, traditionalists or set of Exodus who have to travel tremendous amount of time, three and a half hours, to get to a traditional church? Will it change anything, even if there is an agreement? Well, as far as saying of a contest, uh, it won't. Uh, but, you know, it's obviously, I think, that in terms of people in the interior of the society, that eventually it uh, it will change. Which is, is it is it your question more about how it will affect the state of Acontis or how it will affect the society people? I think the state of Acontis. How will it affect us or will it, will it affect us at all? Well, um, it um, will not directly affect us, but uh, as far as an indirect uh, effect, it will keep the uh, line much clearer between um, uh, rejecting Vatican II and opposing it and joining up with the new church. And there will also be people who will, uh, secondly, as, as Stephen uh, said, and as we all pretty much agree, there will be some people who will uh, rethink the state of Acante question and uh, realize that, that the position that they had, had been in uh, led to this union with the modern church and they'll start to question it. And uh, we will probably uh, get uh, some people like that. I don't know if it necessarily at the beginning will be a great number. Uh, it could be down the line, but uh, there will be some people. Okay. Thank you, Father. Thanks. Thanks God bless you. Thanks for your call, Henry. Well, and perhaps I'll... Uh try to develop a bit on, on on that about what does it mean to society people since I think of the well I know of the three of us I'm the only society attendee and I've those are the people I've been discussing with mostly I know I had a friend that I've been that I was speaking with today actually who's sort of new was asking me what does this mean uh, to us so uh, I mean uh, again Stephen says he thinks is a uh, going into some intellectual honesty, but I, I see it as a as a sellout in terms of you know, giving up the fight for tradition. Mm-hmm. And and I, I think whether you agree that the pope, that Benedict Sixteenth is the pope or not, I think it still is a huge surrender to by being, allowing yourself to become part of this Franken Church. <laughs> and, uh, and and I think. I I think it'd be a, it'll be a maybe later than sooner or sooner than later. It depends on how fast they crank up the heat for the frog in the the pot of water once it's up. And, and frogs they are indeed, indeed. <laughs> but um, I I think it'll 
could be could be quite disastrous for the faith in general and the faithful. Well, what 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 uh, people have to look beyond is is uh, you know eventually uh, when they're part of the new church, eventually what will happen, and that's where uh, you know the, the three bishops have it. Uh, more or less figured out that that uh, it will not take too long to boil the frog. Uh, just the, the the nature of the arrangement, even uh, the personal prelature. My understanding of that is that, um, uh, but to go into a diocese to work, you have to uh, even with a personal prelature, you have to have the approval of the diocesan bishop. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think they might they might they might back end it in. So they'll say, well, everything is starry and decisive. If you're there in the diocese right now, you know, you're protected. Sort of retroactive. Yes, they would grandfather it. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, but uh, to go into a diocese, you would have to do that. And uh, I imagine that uh, initially, at some point, at the local level. Um, the society priests would have to sort of shine around at the chancery office and uh, uh, say hello. So the, there, there's um, uh, going to have to start to be some sort of uh, uh, contact there. And uh, eventually with that, um, uh, there will be uh, more pressure to do this, that, and the other thing. And uh, on that point, I think the bishops are right that, that long term, they will end up in the same position, basically, as the Fraternity of St. Peter and uh, these other indult organizations, that they're part of the institution and they really can't criticize it. Well, I think it's sort of interesting, Father, they want, I think the reason why these bishops made that analysis is they've watched it happen all these years. Bishop Sanborn had that article, The Mountains of Jel Bowie. Um, mm-hmm. How many times has Rome quote-unquote Rome cut a quote-unquote deal with the latest breakaway group. Now, this is the mm-hmm. largest group ever. So let's be, let's be fair that this is the largest deal ever. Mm-hmm. But it's still a deal being done. And it was one that over, overcame the um, objection of uh, Bishop Vallee, which was no canonical agreement without doctrinal agreement. And, yes. and essentially, Benedict said, I said uh, fully with that, I want the deal done. So it's sort of, uh, you know, it reminds me of uh, an entrepreneur who, you know, he wants someone to sign on the dotted line and he'll say or do anything. So at this point, it's like, okay, well, hey, if you don't, if you think that I'm a total heretic, that's fine. If you could just sign here on the dotted line, that'll be great. And I think it should be a point of pause for those of us to step back and say, wait a minute, you're willing to accept an organization that, in, in which one of the leading bishops wrote an article essentially accusing you of heresy? Um, in, in Cell de la Terre, that hermeneutic of continuity article that Bishop Tissier wrote, um, and, and the numerous other times he's uh, sort of attacked these modernist stances of Benedict XVI, it doesn't seem to bother him. I think maybe in his university professor mind that it's okay to have opposition because that's what a university is about. You're going to discuss uh, opposing ideas. So the society will be his new debating buddy. Uh, yeah, and they that they... He's, Benedict XVI elsewhere has uh, spoken about, um, I think in, in um, reference to the uh, voiding of the condemnation, condemnation of the errors of Rossomini, he talked about the church uh, moving on to new theological anchorages. So uh, 
it's that's really quite an image there. That the church is like a, a tour boat. Uh, everything is is sort of relative. You go from one point to uh, another, and uh, you're moving through history from one port to another, and you have different um, uh, sort of souvenirs that you pick up at one port, and you move on to an export, and you get other souvenirs. Uh, that doesn't mean that you necessarily get rid of the older souvenirs. You might keep those along. But the new ones are nice, too. And perhaps that's the situation that he sees the Pius X Society being in. That these people are uh, finally they're on the tour boat, and they have their uh, collection of souvenirs along with them. And uh, these souvenirs are kind of nice, and it's nice that they can admire them and be part of the crew, and, and we're all in the same boat. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the old anchorage was boring. I didn't like this view anyway. So uh, no. maybe we can move, move somewhere else. <laughs> so so uh, just to uh, remind uh, everyone, <laughs> you're listening to uh, Restoration Radio, and we are taking calls uh, and questions via phone, Twitter, and Facebook. The phone in, the phone number is 949 949- Two seven two nine four one seven. Uh, the Twitter account is at True Restoration, and questions uh, by Facebook, facebook.com forward slash True Restoration Press. Yep, thank you, Nicholas. And if you want to call in, these are our last fifteen minutes um, that we'll have with Father on this discussion. And I think Father, just to kind of bring us back to our last show, you know, we had you. Uh, you had talked about um, how they got to Demerung, and we had mm-hmm. debated today that maybe we would have the, uh, other, rather than Tuas Petrus, that we would have part of the 10 minute aria here and just sort of cut it off. So, you know, you wouldn't know whether the fat lady had actually finished singing or not. Um, I think we would save that for another show. <laughs> but, you mean, whether again, the fat lady actually sings. Right, and, and your point was um, you had said, how long will this be dragged out? Will you know? Will they sign and unsign? And I think you have you've moved your anchorage from the last call, shall we say, from the last. Time oh yes, had. so you've moved to a different substantial anchorage, in which um, you uh, have accepted that there will be a deal. There's not going to be a sort of um, long drug out process. And I think you have heard from some of the same sources that I've heard that there may be something even as soon as this week. I think Rorate was reporting that um, Bishop Lay is in Rome currently. Yes, I just just saw that on the internet. That's all, that's always a sign that uh, obviously that something is going down, and uh, so we should have some uh, should have some news about it pretty soon. Um, the um, uh, it was uh, interesting, actually, to uh, look back at some of the older letters of Archbishop Lefebvre uh, on uh, when you know he did actually speak uh, quite in favor of the deal. They 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 put one up on um, uh, one of these these sites recently. Someone who was very much in favor of the deal, and uh, his his words were that we're willing to, we willingly agree to be recognized by the Pope, such as we are and to have a seat in the Eternal City, adding to our collaboration in the renewal of the Church. We have never desired to break with the successor of Peter, nor consider the Holy See vacant, in spite of the trials. 
we submit to you a project of reintegration and normalization for our relations with Rome, uh, considering what you now know of us and our works. And you, it, it appears very much from uh, what one hears that uh, Bishop Fillet has been offered uh, far more than Archbishop Lefebvre was offered in 1988. Uh, we'll see when that uh, we'll see when that comes out. But the, there, there is this uh, there is this sea change definitely, uh, and, and inclination to accept it. Well, and um, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Nicholas. Okay, I was going to jump in with our next question, but uh, I may I, I missed what was just being said there since I was in screening, so uh, I, I don't want to be cutting off the conversation if there's something going on. No, I I have some thoughts, but I, I want you definitely to take calls um, while um, while we have time because we don't have a lot of time left in the show. All right. So we've got Brian calling from the U.S. with a uh, a question that I actually uh, ha- uh, had in my mind or. That, or that my wife brought up when I was uh, reading her uh, your article, Stephen. So I'll just, uh, uh, Brian, you're on. If uh, you could ask your question, please. Oh, thank yes. you. It's great to be on, and uh, great to talk to you, Father. I seem like a little bit of a hypocrite. I'm not a society member, but I, I attend the uh, Indult Latin Mass in the Archdiocese of Chicago. But uh, oh, okay. I have a lot of respect for the society. I have attended mm-hmm. some of their masses, but it seems like uh, everything that Bishop Fillet is doing. It appears to me to be a deep penetration mole that's achieved rank within the society, and now he's all of a sudden uh, doing a 180 and selling them out. It mm-hmm. seems to me he's doing uh, he's achieved rank to uh, do some uh, big damage to it at a at a certain time. Hmm. Well, um, no, he he was the, the the Swiss kid who lived at the bottom of the driveway at a cone. <laughs> So by, by saying that, I, I'm saying that, no, he was a, um, uh, there's no possibility of anything like that. He is a, his dad um, was, the man, was the manager of the uh, electric, um, they call it the electric factory, the, the generator station next to a cone. They have this big um, uh, water pipe running down the, the mountains. It's hydroelectric. And um his dad was the manager of that, and he grew up literally in the shadow of a cone. And in fact, he was a, um, a Bishop Sanborn, who is a contemporary of mine, lived at the Fillet home in the early 1970s when um, uh, uh, Bernard Fillet was just a little kid. And so he's, uh, I mean, his his roots are really there, and I think that's extremely, anything like that is extremely unlikely. The Society of St. Pius X has uh you know been his uh, uh been his life and um he uh is doing what he is doing because he thinks it's something that archbishop lefevre would have wanted him to do so uh, uh, I, you know when the other three bishops are against it and i'm sure a majority of the society members are against it i <laughs> I, I just wonder if he doesn't have uh, another agenda yeah, and um, I think that it's a um, uh, no. I, I think in his case, he was uh, he would be really isolated from uh, from anything like that. I think that he is uh, genuine in his um, uh, desire to do this, and that it's not for some sort of uh, an external motive. He would have had 
uh, no real contacts or anything like that from from the outside. And you know, I met him when he was younger, and he was not a um, uh, he did not uh, give one the impression of of uh, someone who would be devious in that way. Oh, so Brian, okay, does yeah. your, Brian, does that answer Thank your question? You, What's All right, yeah, thanks a lot, yeah, Brian. God bless you. Thanks Thank for your you. call. Okay, uh, we have uh, one more question from Chris, uh, also calling mm-hmm. from the United States, and uh, he's responding to our call earlier in the show for uh, listeners to uh, chime in with their two cents of uh, okay. what uh, what might happen at the deal or what they think they might do. So, uh, 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 Chris, if you want to go ahead. Oh, hi, Chris. Thank you, Ab. Hello, Father. Uh, I my my observation is that if the three bishops, and I think especially Bishop Williamson, do try and split off and essentially start up their own organization, mm-hmm. uh, it probably I don't I don't see it having a lot of feet because um, whenever I go on the uh, websites to look up mass locations of all of the different. Um, uh, non non indult tradition, traditionalist organizations sure. there seem to be course you know the they they're clustered together mm-hmm. and uh you know just I, I live here in Minnesota speaking from from our experience i mean there's 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 always a uh, an s s p x mass center right you know and then right close to it either s s p v or c m r i and i mm-hmm. i think that's i think that's uh true over a lot of the country united states anyway and oh, so yeah, sure. for those, yeah. So for those who are, you know, take a little bit more of a, a hardline stance, it's it's just it's it's that much easier for them to just kind of walk across the street, essentially, to uh, you know to go to mass centers that uh, uh, that uh, you know aren't aren't covered in any in this in this uh, potential deal. Sure, sure. Uh, well, there's that, and uh, also. In America, at least, uh, and I do know the American scene fairly well um, as regards traditionalists, uh, because I've been with it for a long time, it would be extremely difficult for um, sort of a splinter of a splinter to start up new mass centers somewhere, yeah. at least in the United States, because the territory is pretty well covered. Uh, yeah. In a couple of places, you maybe have people who... Um, who would be interested in that, but the the distances are so vast. Uh, I think that uh, it's, it would be just plain easier for someone to go to a Pius X mass center if they were, uh, or uh, to go, as you say, somewhere else if they figured out the issues a little bit differently, you know, CMRI or to one of our mass centers. So it, it, it doesn't have really legs in this country in terms of anything sort of practical. Um, mm-hmm. It may have it in France because that country is a lot more concentrated and there are a lot more traditional Catholics in a smaller area in France. So Tissier de Malloray probably uh, could get something like that going in France, but in other countries uh, I don't see that happening because the ground is covered. Yeah. Chris, any other thoughts? No, I, I just, I mean, it, it seems that in general kind of the, the wars over this have already been fought. Yeah. You know, basically yes. going back to when, you know, when you and 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 uh, your brother priests, uh, you know, split with the society, you know, twenty years, mm-hmm. thirty, almost, almost thirty years ago now, or yeah. no, it was twenty, yeah, thirty years ago. So, yeah. you know, that uh, I think I think all the uh, 
you know, all the all the questions and everything like that, a lot of it has already been, people have already hashed that out for themselves. Yeah, they've they figured uh, it out. Sure. Well, thanks Thanks very much, Chris. Thanks for your call, Chris. Thank you, Father. Hello. Father, we're getting um, a lot of calls. I, I, you know, it's your day off. I want to make sure that you're okay because we have the mechanism to go a little bit into overtime if, if you can. Okay, that's fine. Okay, um, so we'll keep going, and I think Nicholas is still... Um, Working on those calls, but I just a, a bit of lightheartedness uh, in to Chris's last comment. Um, what uh, what do you call yourself? I mean, you all had that question when you left the Society of Saint Pius the Tenth, and I think you know which Pius do you pick from? Are you going to be the Society of Saint Pius the First? You know, uh, <laughs> you know what happens uh, then. So you know, I'm sure you all discussed it when you left. Uh, yeah, we did. Uh, I haven't thought up one for the um, uh, what the three bishops may be doing, but maybe eventually I'll, I'll, I'll come up with something and I'll get back with you. Well, you they're gonna have the, the real Society of Saint Pius X, or, or you know, it might be um, the Society of Archbishop Lefebvre. It might be um, so, because they might they might still want to hold on to that line. Sure. Um, right, for well, those who are calling in, getting... um, I think we're gonna we're gonna hold. We're gonna all the callers who are in the queue right now. We're definitely going to get to your calls, but I think we're gonna hold on any any more callers after this. So, um, uh, sorry, if you want to slip in some last minute questions, please go to Twitter at True Restoration is the handle that you want to send Twitter questions to. But I think we're gonna close the phone lines at this point, and I'll let Nicholas take it away with our callers. All right. Uh, so the next one is from uh, Canada. Tim from Canada. He has a question. Uh, regarding whether uh, the site of a contest might be Rome's next target once they've uh, eliminated the Society of St. Pius X as a threat. So, Tim, <laughs> go ahead. Hi. Hi, Chris. Hi, Tim. Hello, Father. Hi. Um, that's basically my question. My question is, okay, so let's say that this deal goes through and it's sufficiently successful and the line does become clear and who knows what happens, you know, in the future sometimes. Weird things happen instead of a cantus gets some media player mentioning and it becomes a lively issue. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing as what happened to the church 50 years ago or 70 years ago or as long ago as it was now, um, might we be concerned that the modernists might next kind of analyze us and try to see uh, where our strengths and weaknesses are and maybe begin to put screws to the side of a cantus? Well, I mean, they try to do that already in the sense of, uh, you know, they keep files on people. And uh, they keep uh, quite informed of, you know, who's up to what, who's doing what. But the difficulty with um, uh, state of a contest is precisely because there are, uh, well, we don't recognize them. We think that they're they're heretics. And, uh, you know, the, um, I don't know what kind of... uh, uh, deal they could possibly offer me, you know, maybe, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, you know, free fish fries or something like that. But you won't have uh, to do jogathons anymore, Father. How about that? Oh, please, yes, <laughs> no more jogathons. <laughs> but um, the um, uh, the other consideration is that Saint Evacontus are necessarily uh, there are small groups and independent priests, and we're spread out. The difficulty, and that's the difficulty in terms of cooperation and uh, obviously many other things, but they can't come along and subvert everyone at once, which they could do with the Pius X Society. And uh, so uh, I don't think that practically we can 
uh, expect anything like that. They will sometimes address issues that state of accountants have, ra- have raised, and uh, one of them actually that um, uh, Ratzinger, um, as a cardinal, did address was the new ecclesiology, and that was a uh, the, the in effect the, the defending the Frankenchurch heresy, and that was an issue that only state of accountants really had, had had raised that new concept of the church. So they keep up to date on certain things and feel, um, uh, you know, might from time to time feel obliged to address a certain issue. But they couldn't get us all at one swoop. So when our splashes kind of make ripples and they feel them over in Rome a bit, they might be, they sometimes feel obliged to at least neutralize the objection as best they can. Yeah, to to uh, do something. And they, they definitely did that on the the... the uh, uh, new Vatican II teachings on the Church, which we found very interesting. We didn't expect that anyone would do anything with some of the things that we said, but they did. So okay. So on the other hand, though, it would seem that like our, our weakness is almost our strength in this case. It's exactly because we're not so corporate that you can't easily just get in there and kind of in one foul swoop take care yeah, of it. Yeah, right, well, it's sort you. of like. Yeah, it, it's uh, sort of like guerrilla warfare, and, you know, we, we could not be subverted. And I'm just uh, going to hop in, Father, real quick. Um, we're we're at our allotted show time, but it will continue to record. So for those of you who are listening live, it may look like it's getting cut off, but if you wait for a minute and when the show, you can download the, the podcast in these next few minutes, which we're going into overtime, you'll hear them. So don't worry if this gets cut off right now. Right. And the next question I think is important, so listen uh, or download it. Uh, All right, right. Tim, Tim, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say thank you guys for uh, doing this show, and thank you, Father, for uh, addressing our questions, and uh, uh, God bless you all, and hopefully things turn out for the best. Thanks Thanks for calling in, Tim. God bless you. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right, so I'm going to bring in our last caller then, who I I think that has an important question for us is Katie Lilly from from Texas. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, my my problem is I was part of the group that left the Nova Soto back four years ago and okay. finally found an independent priest at the society in Sanger, Texas. And mm-hmm. then they ousted him and put in other priests, and they keep ousting them, and they keep getting more modern and modern. Where do we go to save our soul? Do we go? Do we just go to Mass twice a year with confession twice a year? like in the old days, the 1800s, or we seek out a set of a contest priest because we can't accept the uh, modernist view or, or Vatican II. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, a uh, good practical question. The, um, the important thing is that, uh, you know, you, uh, first of all, you try to understand the situation in the church and you try to find a logical uh, conclusion, a logical explanation for it, and the uh, idea is that the church can't give error, the church can't give evil, nor can the authority of the church give error or evil. So that brings up the question of uh, the uh, authority of, of uh, members of the Vatican II hierarchy. And so, if you kind of resolve that question in your own head, well, what do you do? You um, should not go to a mass that's offered in in union with the modern church because the uh, there's the, um, 
common worship in terms of, of uh, uh, assistance at mass necessarily uh, connotes, brings with it the idea of a common doctrine as well. So uh, that's why the church is always forbidden um, uh, participation in non-Catholic services, even if the services were uh, orthodox in and of themselves and were valid. So that's the uh, that, as it were, is is, is uh, the prohibition. What you can do is um, uh, it's a question simply of doing the best that you can, as, as someone would have done missionary times. That uh, you know you uh, get to um, uh, clearly valid Catholic service uh, whenever you can. You get to confession when you can. You can avail yourself of a validly ordained. Um, uh, uh, priest who uh, in, in in a pinch for something like extremunction, the sacrament of extremunction. There's no difficulty with with uh, something like that, but because the reception of the sacrament is not necessarily the same as like common worship, so there's okay. there's, there's a little give on that. So uh, and you know apart from that you. Uh, do the best you can to live a good Christian life. And, uh, you know, you can, now the wonders of the modern age, you can hear Mass on the Internet. We have Mass on the Internet and sermons. So you at least get that and can make a spiritual communion. Okay, all right. All right. It's, 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 not, it's definitely not quite the real thing, Katie Lily. No, it is. <laughs> but I appreciate, I just found you guys uh, the other day through uh, org. And I okay. really, really appreciate. I really appreciate it. And it just seems like it, I'm on this quest. No matter where I go, and they keep dropping the math. They keep, you know, they keep messing with our math. And uh, it's just real sad. Well, it might be. It might be also a, you know, a, a cross that our Lord has given you as well. You know, in this yes. time. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, thank you very much. I'll give up the phone. Thanks for your thank call. Thank you, Katie. God bless you. Bye now. Well, Father, um, we're into overtime now, so I'll go ahead and wrap up the show and just um, thank you and Nicholas. I know that having it on Monday evening meant that we lost uh, a number of our listeners in Europe. At least people had written to me and said, well, Stephen, I, I want to hear the show, but I'm not, not getting up at you know 2 a.m. when I can just download it in the morning. So mm-hmm. um, the modern age, they can definitely listen to this conversation. You have been listening to Restoration Radio's um, fourth broadcast. Our conversation today was with um, Nicholas Wansbutter, my co-host, and Father Anthony Chicada of St. Gertrude the Great, discussing the recent controversy of the three bishops um, conflicting with Bishop Fillet on the imminent deal. Uh, we talked about uh, what might happen, and um, obviously as soon as this stream ends, you can go and download the podcast free of charge. Um, for those who are interested in the article that Father referenced twice, I put that on our Twitter feed, uh, Traditionalist Infallibility in the Pope. If you just go to our Twitter, you can see it there and link right to it. Um, Father um, Nicholas, do you have any uh, last words you want to leave our audience with before we, we close with uh, some Palestrina? No other or Nicholas. Uh, well, I would just say that uh, you know people should pray about the situation, and uh, it's uh, a lot of times when you live, you're living through an extremely confusing situation in society in the church. You don't see how um, how, how exactly it will end, but ultimately it's in the hands of of Almighty God. And we have to have confidence in Him that uh, somehow, through all these different twists and turns, that um, 
uh, steps will be taken toward the restoration of the true Catholic faith and Catholic worship everywhere throughout the world, and that more souls will be saved. And uh, that, I guess, is the uh, the hope of this all. Hmm. Nicholas? Uh, no, I don't think I have anything that I can add. Well, Father, thank you so much for joining us. Um, if you want to hear more from... Um, Father Anthony Giacotta, um, you can read some of the books he's put out. Philothea Press puts out the Ottaviani Intervention, which he uh, translated and edited, as well as his book, Work of Human Hands. You can find those uh, on the Internet um, and read excerpts. Father also has a, a YouTube um, YouTube channel for those who are, uh, shall we say, less diligent in their reading. Um, he provides easy summaries, and that's at uh, youtube.com forward slash work of human hands. Nicholas, my co-host, blogs both at durandult.blogspot.com on traditional Catholic matters and swordsandspace.blogspot.com. Actually, uh, just swordsandspace.com. That's right, just swords for those interested in science fiction with a traditional Catholic twist. I've been your host, Stephen Heiner, from True Restoration Press. Um, you can find our books at truerestorationpress.com, and you can find our, our uh, interviews that we've done with clerics and Catholic laymen at truerestorationmedia.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll leave you with two ace patrus. This program was brought to you free of charge by the generous sponsorship of an anonymous donor in honour of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers.